He's got a nose for news and a face for radio. You're listening to Price's Highway, the podcast with your host, Steve Price. She recently put Spring Hill on the map. Hear all about Christine Welchel's Jeopardy journey. Pam Kasky runs the day-to-day business of the city of Spring Hill. She answers to the board of Mayor Notterman, but was kind enough to answer our questions too. Let's face it, we've all got them. Opinions. They're not always popular, and so we're going to run down our favorites. Giddy up. Let's do this thing. Price's Highway is presented by Price Sells Homes. Don't think twice. Call Carrie Price at 615-497-3317. Or find her on the web at PriceSellsHomes.com. Plus, we're fed by Frank and his friendly staff at Grecian Family Restaurant. Now on with the show. Buckle up, Spring Hill Metroplex, and enjoy the ride. I'm Craig Midget, and this is Price's Highway, the podcast. All right, everybody. Welcome to Price's Highway, the podcast. I'm your host, Steve Price. With me, as always, is Craig Midget. Craig, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Do we? Do you really need to say as always? Because this is only what my like fourth episode. I don't know. You're I doing, think that, you're I doing think, like two years before me. I think that's what Wayne always said on Wayne's World, right? With me, as always, is Garth. He did say that. Yes, he did. All right. Party on, Craig. <laughs> All right. Party on, Steve. <laughs> okay, so, I miss me some decent Saturday, Saturday Night Lights. Right? Man, whatever happened to that show? That just tanked. Anyway, uh, you probably don't hear in the background the people walking in to Grecian Family Restaurant because... Bing. <laughs> our schedules just really didn't line up. We all had very busy schedules and our guests had busy schedules, but we have an incredible show today. We want to do a quick shout out and some well wishes to Frank from Grecian. Uh, he has undergone knee replacement surgery. His wife uh, talked to us, Sasa, our friend Sasa. She, uh, she told us that you know he is in recovery and he's doing the best he can. And he wanted to let you all know that he is very appreciative of your prayers and well wishes. And he may actually show up to the restaurant for like an hour next week. So, uh, you know, Frank, we're thinking of you and uh, we're praying for you. So get better, my friend. Yeah. So it's, so it's up to us tonight to kind of share on on frank's behalf what's going on at the restaurant uh here coming up soon so what this is now the fifth year i think that the the local greek restaurant in spring hill tennessee is serving up corned beef and cabbage for saint patty's day at the grecian restaurant correct Hmm. so Susie, who works back in the kitchen she is of Irish descent. I think her mo- grandmother, um, Sasa, told us was Irish. And yeah, it became a thing to do there um, like five years ago. And it's become ever popular each year. So I think last year they sold 100 dishes of corned beef and cabbage. And I think didn't have any left for dinner by the time dinner came around because it sold out so quick. And this year they're doubling that and preparing for 200 meals of corned beef and cabbage for patty's day so we we encourage you to get out there and try it before it before it sells out and again on frank and sauce's behalf there's also other events happening next week to uh 
to to piggyback onto Patty's day, they're doing a lucky gnome paint party, uh, which is happening on Wednesday night. A couple things to to check out there, and they're also Greece is a great place uh, to have fundraisers. Frank is very generous. I think ten percent of the uh, of what they bring in during one of these fundraisers is, is donated to a cause. Uh, Thursday, March 24th is a fundraiser for the Summit High School Boys and Girls Varsity Tennis Team. So keep that in mind as well as you decide what to dine on in the next coming weeks uh, and where to dine. And check out the events on the Grecian Family Restaurant Facebook page uh, to keep on top of those. Yeah, so when you're not at Grecian Family Restaurant, you should be on the Prices Highway Facebook group. Uh, we do a lot of fun, engaging posts there where a lot of people like to jump in and engage uh, with some of the questions we have. It's at uh, facebook.com slash groups slash Prices Highway. And that's where hundreds of your friends and neighbors hang out every day. All right. So one of the posts put up there, unpopular opinions only. So the very first one was, uh, yeah, this is nice. Steve Price is funny. Apparently, <laughs> unpopular opinion there, which is probably more of a popular opinion. And uh, lemon starbursts are the best. I Trash. tend to no, I tend to agree with that one. Trash. Miranda, I'm with you on that. If it, if it's not red or pink, get it away from me. Yeah, you know the pink isn't bad. Do you have one? What, what's your unpopular opinion, Craig? Unpopular opinion? Yeah. Uh, I gotta go with the Beatles. What about them? Never been a fan. Beatles are overrated. Overrated. That's my that's my that's my unpopular opinion. It's it's just like you don't like their music, or you you can admit that they're good musicians, right? I yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, I don't think they're terrible, but I don't think that they I don't think they're amazing as amazing as so many people make them out to be. There's great songs. Um, but you know, twenty percent of their songs are great. The rest are rest are filler. All right, moving on from the Beatles, not being very good. Uh, my unpopular opinion is uh, Craig Kilborn was the best Daily Show host, and that is not only opinion, but that is a fact. I gotta I gotta go with you there. He he was he was a strong host. Compared to everybody else, he was definitely the best. I, I, I sure definitely love to hear him um, more than Colbert these days. Yeah. Colbert just goes for the low-hanging fruit all the time. It's not even funny, uh, in my opinion, which might be an unpopular opinion. But between <laughs> us two, it's not. Uh, Angie Jackson, uh, potatoes are gross. Okay. Potatoes? Who hates on potatoes? I don't know. Angie does. Potatoes are no good for her, apparently. Uh, Christy, Yellowstone is overrated. <laughs> Christy, I bantered over this one. Yeah, oh, that was funny. I like I like your uh, retort there, Craig. What did you write? retort. Your face is overrated. Good lord. That was that was my third grade response. Yeah, you're such a child. So, okay. <laughs> Jennifer Duval says salsa is not good. That's definitely unpopular. Jennifer, Jennifer, Jennifer. 
Uh, let's go down here. Okay, this may be the most unpopular opinion of them all. Tony writes, I prefer shorter daylight hours and longer nights. Ugh. Tony, need, Tony needs to go live up north, like Antarctic North. Oh, that'd be, that'd be south. Like Arctic North, like Canada North, if he likes the short days. Yeah. We got a plethora of them, of them up there at certain times of the year, of course. Now we're going to go. Me, I love me some long summer days. Oh, me too. Now we're going to go back to the music world. Uh, Lindsay apparently thinks Bob Dylan's music is awful. <laughs> that would be unpopular with many. Real men don't use straws. Thank you, John, for that. I uh, like that one. Okay, Van Hagar is superior to Van Halen with Roth. Hmm, that's tough. That's tough. They both have their they both have their merits. For Nashville, this is very unpopular. Sacrilegious, even. Yeah, hot chicken is way overrated and stupid, according to Brian. <laughs> well, his his opinion is 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 poorly supported. And irrelevant. Because hot chicken rules. How hot do you get yours? I'm like the I'm like the one step below their hottest. Whatever whatever really? the place is. Did we ever have a conversation about hot chicken? No. Okay. Well, when I went to Prince's, the original Prince's hot chicken over, I guess it was on off Trinity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I had it closed down because a car ran through it or something. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so I went there and um, I got the medium. It's like, eh, medium, I can handle medium. No, I cannot handle medium. I got the medium the first time I ever went to Prince's and it tore me up. <laughs> I ran outside, <laughs> I turned the car on and I sucked cold air <laughs> from the vent. It was terrible. I mean, good chicken, but man, I was hating life. I was sweating. I was red. My 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 lips were numb, but it was so good. <laughs> and I went back. <laughs> and, the, and really, the worst part of it that was for lunch. And then I had to take a client out that night for all you can eat catfish. And I don't think my stomach has ever. Oh goodness! Same night. Same night. Oh man, yeah, it was it was a bad weekend. Okay, well, you know, Craig Midget may be a local celebrity, but we've got a national celebrity on the show. Christine Welchel is a four-time champion on everyone's favorite quiz show, Jeopardy, and she joins us now on Nobody's Favorite Podcast, Price's Highway. <laughs> Christine, how are you? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Good. Well, thank you for being here. So what brought you to Spring Hill? I have lived in Spring Hill for 14 years. I got here before the crossings opened, so I've been here for a while, and the same thing that probably brought a lot of people here a chance to get a little more house for less money than Nashville prices. Yep. Does that also, did that also get you here before the Kroger marketplace? Yes. Um, yeah. We, we would hear the explosions and my little two-year-old at the time would say the building Kroger. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that was, that was what it was. They were doing all the explosions for the fountain laying the foundation or whatever. Hilarious. Do you ever go to any of the restaurants and play uh, trivia nights or anything? When I can, yes. Um, as a piano teacher, prime time for piano teaching is weeknights. Uh, so I often 
and teaching instead of going to play trivia. But I try to whenever I can when there's a break. And I'm actually have spring break next week, and I plan to go at least twice. <laughs> well, let us know. We'll be on your team. You can make I, it look I, I think it might be easier to find teammates this time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the We're... funny story. Um, last time I went was just a couple of weeks ago, right the week before my Jeopardy episode started airing, and they had to close the studio for weather or something like that but then the weather passed through and so I had a free night and went out to trivia by myself and I just walked up to a table and said can I play with (laughs) y'all and they let me play with them and we did pretty well and after we turned in the last question and I was able to get my phone out without being accused of cheating I said I have a confession to make and they joked well what are you a professional trivia player I said not exactly but and I held up my phone that had my Jeopardy picture. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm actually going to be on Jeopardy next week. <laughs> so that was kind of a surprise. <laughs> nice. So you're currently a piano teacher and organist at your church right now. When did you realize you had a talent for music? It really kind of started because my parents didn't quite know what to do with me. And they felt like they had this very energetic preschooler who needed an outlet and so they tried to get me into piano lessons and the teachers they talked to said no she's too young we we don't take them that young and then uh, someone talked to them about the Suzuki violin program which is designed for young children and they took me to meet a Suzuki violin teacher and she agreed to teach me. And so I started out as a violin student and then added piano when I got a little older. And it was just, it turned out to be something that I was good at. And I discovered I had perfect pitch, which makes everything a lot easier. And then, and then when I started reading music, I, that came naturally to me as well. And so it just, um, it became my thing that I, I kind of felt special because I was good at this. And so I've, I've just always enjoyed it. You know, I did, Suzuki, I did Suzuki piano. Yes. And I was pretty terrible at it, actually. <laughs> uh, what was like, go tell Aunt Rhody? Oh, yeah, go tell Aunt Rhody. That's, yeah. that's in there. That, I think every Suzuki instrument <laughs> ended up playing go tell Aunt Rhody at some yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. And there, there's, there, there can't be many things worse than a first year violin student it it is the it's the hardest thing to listen to uh, a child learning to play violin it's so screechy there are tricks to <laughs> lessening the screech in the beginning yeah. but i mean you do kind of have to close your ears off to a certain degree <laughs> but, but i mean there again it's kind of you do things incrementally yeah. Um, at least when I, uh, when I was taking lessons and then when I um, did Suzuki teacher training to teach violin, you know, it's like you, d- you don't just turn them loose. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of modeling, a lot of guidance, uh, you know, here, do this, just, just this one little bit, yeah, one, one little rhythm and let's listen to it and try to get it uh, pretty good. The hard thing is, is when they're little, the violins are so small that the even if, even if someone really knows what they're doing, playing it, it's hard to get a good sound out. And that's the biggest okay. challenge. 
So you mentioned you mentioned perfect pitch as well. That's the that's the envy of every music major in college. Yes, it, it makes the your it, now that I'm back in school and taking theory class, it makes the ear ear training test a lot easier. Yeah, big big advantage over over the rest of the class. Yeah, I don't I don't have to really. I, you know, they're asking what interval is this? Well, I'm just sitting here. They're going, well, that's a C and that's an A. So that's a major six. <laughs> so, oh. rather, than, rather than having to listen to what the intervals are. It's, so. it's a curse at times too. I was a music major as well uh, in, in undergrad and grad school. Um, I did not have perfect pitch. I have good relative pitch. Um, but I know perfect pitch can be a curse as well. Um, well the piano is a little bit at tune or someone's guitar is a bit off. It's it, when it's um, what's been interesting is as an organist, uh, there's you're supposed to be able to use the transposition function on the organ. So if the if the choir anthem is written a little too high for your choir, you're supposed to be able to turn the pitch down a couple of notches and it will automatically transpose for you as you play. Well, I can't use that function because if I play a chord, if I'm playing a C chord and it comes out sounding like a B flat chord. It just completely throws me off. Oh, I bet it would. Yeah. See, I wouldn't have a problem with that. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the downside. Um, yeah. It's about the only downside, I have to admit. So you're back in school now. What are you studying now? And now I'm finally studying music and being a music major, which I didn't do the first time around. You didn't. What was the first time around? Uh, first time around, well, when I told the story to my 16 year old she was sort of horrified because I was this person I was this student who kept changing majors pretty oh. much every semester <laughs> I couldn't decide I was just hopping around and it finally came to the point where I really needed to decide something and I decided to become a speech language pathologist oh interesting and that was something that in order to apply for the grad you had to have a graduate program for that and you had to have a bachelor's degree in something, anything, just something. Right. So it was, I got to the point where, okay, what is the fastest way out of this undergraduate program? And I ended up getting an undergraduate degree in psychology, uh, which was, it was interesting. You know, I, I learned a lot. And then I did my master's in speech language pathology. And it, I finished the program. I got my degree. It was not particularly a good fit for me uh, career-wise. So um, I just sort of put that aside and I've stuck with music my whole career, basically. Okay. But the, the whole thing of not having the music degree, that was kind of a big regret in my life. I wish that I had been the music major. And now this was the time to go back and do it and everything has fallen into place. And so I'm getting a second master's degree in music. Very, very cool. Um... And you're also studying in Vienna soon, I saw. Oh, yes. Well, the one of the classes that I needed, I was checking the summer schedule to see if it was going to be offered this summer, just so I can kind of knock, knock out some requirements. Yeah. And it turned out it was going to be offered as a study abroad program in Vienna. So I said, well, I can do this and it will make me graduate a semester earlier than I planned. So, and the Vienna part is kind of a bonus. <laughs> a big bonus. Another envy of uh, many music students get to study where, where Mozart. Yes. And thing. I think I'm, I'm said I would find a statue of Maria Teresa 
and take a selfie with it since that's one of the daily doubles that I missed. Oh. <laughs> My music history professor gave me a hard time about missing Maria Teresa. Funny. Before we get into that Jeopardy journey of yours, let's talk about your family life. When did you meet your husband? I met him in college and undergraduate school. So we were we college sweethearts married right after we graduated. Okay. Do you have a funny story or anything about meeting? Not really. Uh, we were just kind of part of the same social circle and uh, gradually, um, you know, our paths kept crossing more and more and then it kind of fell into dating. Cool. And I can vouch for her husband. He's a really, really nice guy. Uh, we did scouts together when our boys were, were in Cub Scouts and yeah, I enjoyed working with, with him. Awesome. Well, yeah, let's talk about your family more. Uh, what's a day in the life like at the Wachel household? Oh, very hectic. <laughs> so uh, what happened right now, um, my husband works from home now. He has ever since, um, well, for the past two years, uh, actually almost exactly two years. They sent him home on March 11th, 2020, and he's been home ever since. Um, he's had maybe a couple of trips, but he used to work traveling Monday through Friday, and now he works from home. And that's great. Um, I have my job as teaching, which is mostly, as I said, in the evenings that I'm going to school during the day. So, you know, a typical day, my oldest gets up and drives herself over to school, and I take the young, my younger two to school, and I drive from there to MTSU. And then someone hopefully remembers to pick up the kids at the end of the day. And uh, my uh, my 14 year old and my 16 year old have dance classes after school. And sometimes my 12 year old has archery practice and I have music lessons. And somewhere in there, we try to remember to walk the dog. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it's pretty it's pretty hectic. Um, so we, we have fun, everybody's busy. So do you kind of slow down on the weekends a little bit? We try to, yes. That's what. That's why we don't necessarily go out and do fun things on the weekends because it's just uh, rest and recovery and catch up on laundry, that sort of thing. Reconnecting with the family. Yes. Yeah, well, you know, before you appeared on Jeopardy, you found out that you'd be taking on a much bigger opponent. Can you tell us about your cancer journey? Uh, yes. Uh, today is actually the one-year anniversary of my cancer diagnosis. Um, I had... I had found something that was concerning and went to my primary care doctor who said, this seems like it might be not something to worry about, but let's get it checked out just in case. And it turned out to be uh, what they call an invasive ductal carcinoma. And so I, that happened in, in you know, I got that diagnosis in March and Things moved pretty quickly. I had a surgery in May, uh, had a double mastectomy and they did, they removed three lymph nodes just to check. Uh, they found a, what they call a micrometastatic carcinoma in the first lymph node. It was very tiny, three tenths of a millimeter and, but the only in the first one. So they knew everything was clear beyond that. And so just, uh, based on all the testing that was done and the recommended protocol after they tested everything 
from, from the surgery, they recommended doing a short course of chemo. I had four chemo treatments last summer. And that is hopefully based, based on, based on research and statistics that should reduce my risk of recurrence uh, to a very low number. So I'm hoping that that's how it all works out. Um, But I finished my chemo at the end of August and had my reconstruction surgery in October. And so right now I'm just kind of, you know, going and I, I, I go and get a monthly shot at the oncologist once a month. That's, um, it's an endocrine therapy to help reduce the rate, reduce the risk of recurrence. Wonderful. Now you, and maybe it was inadvertent or maybe it was intentional, but you made, you made a real impact on the Jeopardy show when you were there uh, on your fourth episode. Um, will you share about that? Between the tapings of my third episode and my fourth episode, I had decided that I was through wearing the wig and I just wanted to be myself. Here I am. This is, this is my hair. It's grown out from chemo. And this is, this is, this is who I am right now. And I just didn't feel like the wig was me really. And so I talked with uh, the contestant producers about having that big of a change would that be strange for continuity continuity of the show and they told me to do whatever I was comfortable with and so I made that decision that I just wanted to be myself on on the show and not hide behind the wig and you know the image of oh this is what I'm supposed to look like right because there was what a month between tapings of episodes three and four right Yes, I had had a while to think about it. <laughs> Did you get any feedback from anybody, um, like letters or emails or anything? Um, no, not direct contact. No, I mean I heard a lot about it. You know, I mean I saw a lot of comments on Twitter and um, the you know, the Je- Jeopardy posted the little video of my interview on all their social media and. I, even though they always always tell you, don't read the comments. I read all the comments. (laughs) I couldn't help it. It was just, it was just too interesting just to see what people had to say. And it was all very positive. And I I really appreciated that. I didn't, I didn't expect it to make that kind of impact. And the first time that someone messaged me and said, Hey, you're in people magazine or whatever. I said, what? I was good, really surprised. Or Good Morning America. Yeah, I yeah, I got I got texted about that a few times on what was that Tuesday morning when that happened. That's really neat. How do you prepare for a show like Jeopardy? Well, it helps just to kind of grow up being a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I mean, I'm I'm one of those people who remembers things whether I want to or not you know back when back when learning phone numbers was a thing before we all had phone numbers stored in our phones Uh you know I I knew I could remember phone numbers you know I would remember phone numbers for years even after I didn't need to know the phone numbers anymore or you know I would remember um just random details on things of I had the magnetic letter set when I was three years old and my parents found out that I could remember, I knew what all the colors were. 
of, of the letters, not just recognize the letters, but you know, I, I, we were in the car and I said, I've lost my purple F. They said, you know what color all the letters are? <laughs> yes, but um, so I just had one of those brains and it didn't always work when I wanted it to, you know, it's like, you know, trying to cram and study for an exam. It didn't always work that way, but, you know, I would just attract facts, I guess. But when it came time for Jeopardy, there, and there's a certain, there's a certain method to it. And basically it's something called the J archive and it's a fan maintained site that has almost every Jeopardy game other that ever was. I don't mean video of it, but basically the boards, the clues, it's all in a database and you can see what's there. And people have taken that information and made flashcard decks and simulator games. So you can practice or you can wow. run flashcards and the information you never know what they're going to ask. I mean, they, they, you, you can have current events on there, uh, a category of current events that's of things that have never appeared on Jeopardy before because it's all new information. But there's a lot of, th there are a lot of things that come up a lot. And by being aware of that, by watching the show, I mean, that's the biggest preparation is watching the show. I have, I have over 600 Jeopardy episodes on my DVR. <laughs> Because I wouldn't, oh my gosh. I wouldn't erase any of them because I kept saying, if I get called for the show, I need to go back and watch these to practice. Wow. And so I, I did a lot of that. I mean, I, I would, I have, I have a little buzzer that's very similar to the, you know, the not buzzer signaling devices. That they have. <laughs> I, so I would sit there and I would just practice. I would push the little button and watch the show and try to try to ring in and answer the questions before the contestants did. And so a lot of practice, a lot of flashcards, a lot of watching the show. Those are the three main things, but I would, I, we would practice simulator games. I would practice with um, people around the country um, for other trivia people that I had gotten to know through Facebook or whatever. And some of them were, you know, these are people who haven't yet had the opportunity to be on the show, but I tell you what, some of them, if they ever get on, it's, it's going to make some news because they're that good. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I would play them and I would get just completely beaten. I would barely even be able to get in on the buzzer. And I said, Oh, this is so hard. And I'm like, Nope, but I need this. I need to play really, really tough opponents to prep for getting on the yeah. show. And it worked. Oh, I wonder as the new Jeopardy host if Ken Jennings screens out those people so that so they don't beat his uh, his record. Uh, I no, <laughs> I, I think he really enjoys he enjoys seeing good gameplay, just like we all do. We we yeah. enjoy seeing people who really get on there and know what they're doing, and he he delights in that. You can you can tell he he one of the things that's great about him being the the host right now is that he just loves the game so much and it just comes out in his, in his hosting. He, he kind of exuded empathy. Um, he, he was very nice and, you know, he chatted with us at the end of each game uh, a little bit about things. And uh, I mean, he has, he has kind of a um, snarky sense of humor. Okay. And if you watched my first game, 
something that something that you may not know is that, and this was true when Alex Trebek was hosting, the host knows what they answer on Final Jeopardy. They can see it. They can also see what you wagered. So when he said, <laughs> he revealed my answer, and then he said, well, if Christine wagered at least $15,001, she'll be the new Jeopardy champion. He knew good and well I hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so he had, he had a little bit of um, fun with that, I think. That was so, that was so stress inducing for us watching it at home. It was like, oh my God, it, they're tied. How, how did she allow that? Oh, well, I can tell you how I allowed it. <laughs> I kept, I had been well-trained in wagering strategy. You have uh -huh. to understand. I mean, I knew the form, there are formulas to follow for this. There, there's a, there's a, there's a method. And so I knew if you're leading going into final, you look at your second place score, you double it. You assume that they're going to try to double up. Right. And then you figure, you subtract your own score, figure out how much is left, and then make sure and add at least a dollar at the end. Well, I was doing, they give us time to work the math over the break. They give us a note card and a Sharpie to do math with. And I kept doing that math over and over so many times that I just forgot about the dollar at the end. Okay. I was just making sure I didn't mess up 17,000 times two minus 19,000. That was the math problem I kept doing over and over. And then I finally said, okay, this is it. This is right. 15,000. This is it. Lock it in, write it down, tap the button. <laughs> and I thought, okay, great. And then when that final Jeopardy clue came up and I looked at it and I said, I'm 99% sure this is Willie Loman. I'm not about to be a Jeopardy champion. And I'm writing down Willie Loman. In the middle of writing down Willie Loman, the light bulb just went off in my head. And I remembered the dollar. And I think someone took a screen cap of because the camera was on my face and they got a screen cap and I, I look like I'm about to be sick. <laughs> and you can't, and you can't change the wager at that no, point. No, no, you can't change yeah. the wager. It's locked in. Wow. So I, I knew what I had done. I knew what was going to happen. I knew what the rule was about tiebreakers and how that was going to go down because I'd seen tiebreakers before and I knew this was going to be a thing. <laughs> And I, and I knew, I knew there was going to be a huge reaction to it too. Um, I didn't know it was going to be quite as big as it was. Um, but I think Jeopardy's just been in the news so much lately that everything that happens makes news. Um, I, I feel like if I had been on Jeopardy four years ago, three or, or, you know, back in 2017, 2018, I don't feel like all of this would have made such big news. Uh, Jeopardy started getting really in the news starting, I guess, in early 2019. They had their all-star tournament. And right after the all-star tournament, Alex Trebek announced he had cancer. And then James Holzhauer was on with his big streak that he had. And then they had the, uh, the GOAT tournament, you know, with Ken Jennings and Brad Rutter and James Holzhauer. And it's just kind of been one big thing after another. And then of course, Alex passed away and we've had all the guest hosts and then we've had a couple of major um, champions that won 38 or 40 games. It's just, just Jeopardy's been 
Jeopardy's been a hot item. I mean, it's it really good, has. It's on a good run right now. Well, uh, yeah, it is. And it's, I found out after I taped, I found out that it is the highest rated non-football show in the nation on a really? consistent basis. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So that was, that was a little scary to me when I found that out because I hadn't been really thinking about the whole being on TV thing. I was just thinking about getting to play the game, you know, just see, go see how I did. Yeah. <laughs> So, so did the cameras play any kind of role in like, making you more nervous or the lights and everything, or were you just ready to play? I was, I was ready to play, but my, my body was very nervous. And so, you know, my brain was working. My body was just shaking. My, my legs just would not work. And some, you know, there was, there was commentary about how I was seemed to be leaning on the podium and or lectern sorry um I was leaning on the lectern and how you know it's like I was really intense or something like that honestly it was just so I wouldn't fall over my legs were, <laughs> my legs were just shaking so bad the whole time the whole game and I had to I had to just prop myself up I can't imagine the nervousness and the pressure and performing well for four nights under that five nights under that pressure yeah well you know it was, it was back to back um so i played um the first game after lunch on tape day they had they taped two games in the morning the monday and tuesday games okay i was wondering about this yes um so so but it, but by the time i played it was after two o'clock so and i'd been there since seven uh we we get there early they give us all the instructions we do the rehearsals uh they draw two names who are going to play the first game against the returning champ and we and the and then the rest of us contestants who are waiting we, we're the audience because they don't have a studio audience now because of covid so we're the audience okay when one game is over the whoever won that game goes and changes their clothes and they draw the next two people and then after the second game they took us all to lunch and when they came back they said, Christine, Patrick, you're up. And we were the two uh, to go play. Cool. And after I won that first game, they took me off to go change my outfit and have my makeup touched up and have my mic checked and brought two more and had to just get on the roller coaster and ride it again. <laughs> so, so those first three episodes you recorded in one afternoon? Yes. Okay. That, golly, that sounds intense. It was intense. It was very, very intense. And, um, and then, you know, it was over and they said, well, we'll be in touch with you tomorrow about your uh, travel arrangements to come back out in January. And, you know, I just, I walked out in the Sony, in the, out in the Sony parking lot and called my husband and said, guess what happened? <laughs> Cause he's, you know, he's back in Spring Hill trying to hold down the fort and um, help the kids. It was their exam week. And, you know, a showcase week at the dance studio and all that. And he's trying to keep all that going. And I had uh, called a friend of mine who lives out in LA and he lived nearby Sony studios. And I called, I said, are you, are you, can you get to me faster than a lift can basically? And he said, yeah. And so he picked me up. And as he told the story, I just basically melted into the seat of the car like I had just basically no bones left in my body. <laughs> uh. So it, I was just exhausted from the, you know, would have been a very intense 10 or 11 hour day at that point. 
Wow. So you were, so in January, no, I'm sorry, in December and over Christmas and the first part of January, you knew you're at least a three-time champion of Jeopardy. Yes. How do you, how do you, how do you keep that in? Yeah, it was, it was hard. It was, it was really hard. And um, I kind of fooled people because I kept telling about my difficult experiences about the shaking and how hard it was. And I felt like I was just going to fall over. And, you know, it was assumed from that, that I had probably lost. (laughs) And so I was able to surprise people when it turned out I actually won. That's very cool. And enjoy your victory a little more that way. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun uh, to, to watch everyone's face as they watched the game. And especially then when the tie happened. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you surprised a lot of Spring Hillians as well. When you mentioned a very famous monument that is no longer with us. Yes. Yes. Um, You know, they make us tell all these uh, in the beginning, even as part of our application, uh, tell some interesting facts about ourselves and then and then when I got called for the show they sent me a questionnaire and asked all these questions and I just felt like the Spring Hill silo was just a story you just don't hear every day and it needed to be dug up out of out of obscurity yes I I just I and I was trying to find something that wasn't just about me and music and um i mean almost almost everything that i tell about myself has to do with music in some way and it, it it's I, it didn't seem very entertaining and i thought the silo story that's entertaining so i i had that down uh, on the list and they the producers thought it was a good story um and we put it off a day because um when i came back with my hair different um, they decided to, uh, that we should talk about that. Yeah. And so we had to put off the side. I had to win one more time in order to talk about the silo. <laughs> Do it for the silo, Christine. Yes. <laughs> and Craig, you're very well versed in the silos history. Can you tell our listeners all about the silo? About the silo? Yeah. Uh, Christine did a good job when she, when she mentioned it in the, in the episode, but yeah, we but, can't, unfortunately we can't play it though. Yeah. So I'm sure yes, there's some people the, in their car right now going, Oh, what is that? What is the Spring Hill silo? The, the, Spring, no Hills, the Spring Hill silo was a, a monument of uh, dubious agricultural importance to Spring Hill. And it, 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 it greeted travelers as, or as, as they came through Spring Hill, coming uh, southbound on 31 from Thompson Station, and it was it was really just this old dilapidated structure, round silo with no roof on it, couple windows, and overgrown with with privet and a a tree growing out of it, and it was it was just kind of a mess, and I guess I was when Chick Fil A was coming in. That kind of sealed the deal for the Spring Hill Silo because it was in the way now. And it was in the way already, even 
if 31 ever gets widened, this this the silo would have come down anyways because uh, it was too close to the road. So one one fateful day, and there's a picture of it on, on the Spring Hill silo page. One fateful day, uh, a dozer took that took that old dilapidated silo down. Uh, someone someone local put up a monument. There was a couple. Uh, it was first just a uh, a couple of pieces of wood making a cross. And then stuffed animals showed up, <laughs> and a balloon showed up, uh, and it was it was it became this big deal <laughs> in town on the on the community Facebook pages because there were there was the old timers and those longing for the simpler days when Spring Hill was a was a farm farming town and always part of our history and uh, we can't let it go we have to hold on to things of the past and you know it, it was it was just an old uh falling apart silo that used to hold grain for cows it really wasn't you know that historically historically significant so yeah we kind of came a running joke uh in town and it got its own facebook page and followers and those who lamented and those who even dressed up as the silo one halloween it's also on that it's also on that page so yeah so it was it was it was great to see it mentioned uh in a, in a national setting and now and, I, and I brought lots of traffic to the facebook page too there was a ton of traffic the next uh the next the next morning no that evening i think and the next day uh, a lot of traffic to the to the facebook page which is which had been fairly dead for a good year or so <laughs> but people now wanted to know the story <laughs> so christine what was the most memorable part of your entire jeopardy journey i mean i think any jeopardy champion you ever ask will probably tell you that winning that first game is the most is the most memorable i didn't mean to make it quite so memorable <laughs> yes <laughs> we talked about but i mean i can continue talking about that uh, because what to kind of continue the story when you know it was shown that I didn't have the right wager they don't come prepared for that you know the, the people the crew of Jeopardy does not start a game of Jeopardy thinking well let's be ready in case there's a tie because that generally just does not happen so they had to stop the game and we had to wait a while and I, they had to do whatever magic happens behind the scenes had to, to program get, a had to program a tiebreaker question to get a to get a tiebreaker question and you know make sure it complies with all the legal regulations and everything and get it set, get the board set up and Ken has to figure out what he's going to say and um, <laughs> I don't know it was it felt like an eternity I think it was I mean it was probably a good ten or fifteen minutes. Uh, for me to just sit there going, what have I done? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and and then, you know, I had to move from what have I done to, okay, don't let this stop you. Yeah. And so yeah. then, then, I mean, I knew it was going to, I knew how the tiebreaker worked. I knew it was going to be sudden death. I knew that I had to be the first one to buzz in. It didn't matter what the question was. I mean, as my joke is that they could have asked about heavy metal heavy metal bands from Sri Lanka, and I was going to be the first one to buzz in. I didn't care 
because you know you get a free guess uh yep. so and then you know the instant that they showed the clue i knew it i knew my opponent was going to know it it was easy and i just basically directed all the energy of my entire life into my thumb <laughs> <laughs> for the most important little thumb twitch of my life <laughs> and you know when i saw my little red lights light up on in my lectern in front of me you know i knew that was it <laughs> so it was a it was an inc incredible incredible moment and it was kind of fun in the next game because at the beginning of the game they showed the clip of that moment and so I got to watch myself becoming a Jeopardy champion at the beginning of my second game. And that was pretty amazing because that's not, most people don't get to watch, watch it happen right there in their second game. They have to wait two months till it comes on yeah. TV to watch it. I got to see the moment right there. I think it gave me a little confidence boost for my next game. <laughs> it gave you a little flex over your, uh, over your uh, opponents in that game too. Well, they had already seen it because they were in the audience. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. I have to tell you this. And this is, you know, speaking of flex, this is a little bit of a flex. <laughs> um, one, of, one of my trivia friends um, looked up in the archive because it lists every champion and how much they've won. And he looked up and apparently figured out that I have won more than any Jeopardy contestant from Tennessee. Really? Nice. There have been a couple of other four game champions in the past from Tennessee, but they didn't win as much money as I did. So okay. I, I'm officially the biggest winner from Tennessee. So oh, what was the total? $75,602. Wow. So what are you going to nice. do with that money? Um, for a part of it, I have an organ picked out. I have my name on it. Uh, it, it will probably be delivered here in the next few weeks. So that's always been an ambition of mine to have an organ at home and I'm ready. Uh, it was suggested to me that the first thing I play on it should be the Jeopardy theme song. And I think that's what I'm going to do. Heck yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Christine, thank you so much for being on the show today. And uh, we appreciate you being here and congratulations again on being a four-time Jeopardy champion. Thank you. Okay, earlier this month, Spring Hill City Administrator Pam Kasky was nice enough to pencil in some time to chat with us about her role, her mentors, and some of the challenges she and city staff are facing. Take a listen. All right, Pam Kasky, the City Administrator for Spring Hill is with us. How are you doing tonight? I'm good, Steve. How are you doing? Oh, doing well, doing well. Now, first, can you tell us what does a city administrator for a city do? Um, so the city administrator in the board of mayor alderman charter is the chief administrative officer. So that means that every, all the employees who work for the city work under the direction of the city administrator. Um, it means that I am the board, I am the only employee that the board hires other than the judge and the attorney, um, and that I report directly to the board, and my job is to keep them as happy as I can keep them. <laughs> How's that been going? Actually, here very well. I'm very, I am very um, happy to be here, and I've got a great board to work with, and so I've been very fortunate. 
So you feel like you've settled in nicely? I think so. I think so. I found my way around everywhere I need to go in Spring Hill. I can still get lost uh, in Columbia and Franklin, but, <laughs> but I found the courthouses. So that's all that's necessary. Now, speaking of Franklin, you and the city administrator, Eric Stuckey, go back quite a ways, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And, and more than that, we have a common mentor. So um, we both of our first bosses in the field were the same person. He's a little younger than I am, though. So we grew up about seven miles from one another. Well, that's great. Uh, all right, so let's go, let's go back in time a little bit. Let's talk about what was Pam like when she was a kid? Well, so Pam was always a little shy, believe it or not, um, always inquisitive. And I got the bug of politics pretty early on. So by the time I was 13, I was kind of dabbling in, you know, local political campaigns and that sort of stuff, helping out candidates and whatever. Um, where, so I had an where was, interest in government. Where was this, Pam? This was outside of Dayton, Ohio. Okay. Um, and uh, the town's called Miamisburg. And they were an early adopter maybe not early adopter, but they were an adopter of the city management form of government, city manager form of government, which is very much the same thing as what we have here. Um, and I ended up not doing well in the social studies test. And I had to go to make, do a makeup thing because you're not allowed to flunk a test in my household. I had to do a makeup uh, work and the Makeup work was to choose a public meeting and attend a public meeting. You could go to a city council meeting or a school board meeting, county commission meeting. And I went to the school board, or the um, city council meeting, and I was so impressed with the guy that was sitting to the right of the mayor. And it turns out that he was um, the city manager. I didn't know what a city manager was at the time, but I watched him in action and I was very impressed by him. He was well spoken knew what he was talking about, and uh, people tend to look to him for advice, and that impressed me. Um, turns out he was a, a neighbor across the street, a, a few houses up, and he took me home that night because you could get a ride with strangers back then. <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, and over the next few years, I became a devoted tag-along of his and um, made a decision when I was about 13 that I wanted to be a city manager when I grew up. Interesting. Yeah, that was my next question. Who who were your main influences? And it sounds so, like one of them. Yeah, John Laney was definitely the primary one. And then there were three others. And, um, you know, yesterday I found out that one of them, a guy by the name of uh, Tracy Williams, uh, was a city manager in the town next to mine. Um, and uh, he passed away last month. And so that was sad for me to hear. But uh, Tracy had, had, was very definitely um, uh, a mentor. He was the one that gave me my first application to the International City County Managers Association, uh, at which I joined in 1982. So yeah, that makes it 40 years that I've been uh, following this profession. And then Rick Helwig, who is the common guy that uh, Eric and I both worked for, and then a guy by the name of uh, Don Vermillion. And uh, those four guys were kind of my um, 
mentors. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate uh, back in the 70s, because I'm old, uh, the, uh, um, not one of them said, um, this is not a man, this is not a position for a girl. They all encouraged and supported me in days when that didn't happen to every female. And right. um, yeah, um, you know, I've been the first female manager in most communities that I've been in. And my first ICMA uh, meeting, there were probably less um, than 100 women there as professional managers. Hmm. All right. Well, are you ready to play a quick game? Sure. All right. Craig and I, we're just going to go back and forth. We're going to have these, these quick questions for you. You ready? Yep. Okay. Soda or tea? Soda. Ah, football or baseball? Football. Nice. Professional, professional or college? Really? <laughs> She's okay. holding up a UT. This is, uh, since this is only audio, she's, she's uh, bringing up UT. Uh, yeah. so I worked for you, the University of Tennessee for four years. I'm a dedicated Vols fan. So that wasn't okay. University of Texas though, right? Right. That was not Texas. <laughs> that was Tennessee Orange. All right. Uh, hamburger or hot dog? Hamburger. Fancy or casual? Casual. Netflix or Amazon Prime? Prime. What's your favorite show? Currently. Currently? Uh, probably The Rookie. Okay. Elvis or The Beatles? The Beatles. Travel or staycation? Travel. Where's your favorite place you've ever traveled to? The Grand Tetons. Ooh. I have not been there. Tell me about it. Did you drive it? Did you hike it? Yes. <laughs> okay. Wow. So in 2013, I spent seven months living on the road, traveling to 24 states, 22 national parks, and I did about 25,000 miles, and I tent camped. Very oh. nice. So I've done Are you all write a book about it? Pardon? Are you going to write a book about it? I blogged it, and everybody's been telling me how to turn that blog into a book. Absolutely. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Now, I got to ask you another question. Um, it's not on our, on our question list, but it's timely. Um, first, how long have you been in Spring Hill? A year. Okay. And you mentioned before finding your way around. Um, do you know the site of the former infamous Spring Hill silo. No, uh, but I did see it on the Jeopardy. <laughs> uh, no, I did not know that. <laughs> do, you know, do you know where it is? Have you no. figured out now where it is? I, I haven't had the time. I mean to, however, it's on my list. Well, that, that's, that's your homework uh, for, okay. the, for the next uh, couple of weeks. Okay. Is to, is to fi find the site and find the, uh, find the plaque. Okay, I will. I will make that a priority. <laughs> and right now, I know you've got a late night ahead of you because it's budget time. So we're talking about the next year's budget, and and the city's budget starts what July first, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so what are some of the big and small budget items that you feel are very important right now to achieving some of the city goals? So there are wow, there are so many important goals that are very capital intensive 
We need a new police station. We need a new fire station. We need um, a new library. Uh, we need a new public works facility. We need an expansion to the water and the sewer plant. Um, and we need Highway 31 widened. We need to finish Butner Lane, Butner Road, and the interchange. And that's just the big ticket items. <laughs> that doesn't sound like it's going to cost a whole lot of money. No, no, not at all. <laughs> we can um, get some private investors for that and you know, write a quick check and it's all done, right? All done. Uh, the capital uh, improvements project process that we did um, in January with the board, I think the total value of all those projects was over $600 million. Wow. So how are we going to do that? Yeah, yeah. Um, how are we going to do that over 10 years? Yeah, I don't know. I, I really don't. Um, you know, um, some of that is we're going to leverage every federal and state dollar we can find. Um, you know, we happen to be in a really good time right now where whether you agree or disagree, the federal government is printing money and handing it out to local governments. And we intend to be in line to get our fair share. And so that's some of the way we're gonna do it. Um, the second thing we're gonna do is make sure we make wise use of um, leveraging $1 for two. So if we can get, if we can spend $2, but only have to pay one back because of the way we apply for funds, grants, programs, uh, partnerships, whatever, we can make those dollars go further. Great. I know Craig has a big question about traffic. <laughs> <laughs> it seems about any time you get on Facebook, anytime Fitterer posts something on Facebook about a, a, a new planning project, someone is going to mention roads. Um, tell us what is, what do you know in your position kind of of the, of the city's plan uh, for, for infrastructure, what can you, what could you share at this time to, to kind of set people at ease a little bit with, uh, with what to expect with roads? Well, so first of all, let me make sure that I acknowledge that, you know, I get the, the people's frustration. I get the, the struggles. I've sat in some of those same lines that, that they do. Um, I, you know, um, I often teach strategic planning and the, well, 20 years ago when I was teaching it, um, one of the things I always do is I talk about how you set a goal and when you, um, align yourself to accomplish that goal, it tends to happen. And then I use as an example um, that John F. Kennedy said we were going to go to the moon by the end of the decade in 1961, and we hadn't had anybody orbit the Earth yet. And then in 1969, we actually did it. And then I usually am talking to a group of city managers and administrators, and I say, has anybody tried to do a TDOT project in that amount of time? And invariably, some smart person in the room will go, yes, but we didn't have to buy right away to the moon. Mm. <laughs> uh -huh. 
So one of the problems with growing as fast as we did, and one of the problems with some of the decisions of the past that have been made was we really did not get out in front of the growth. And I'm not going to tell you that's easy. I mean, that's a challenge that I've been encouraging cities to do for many, many years, but it's not easy. It's, it's very hard to try to start spending money before you really have money. And so the, um, and I think this, we're kind of been cursed with that. But also if you realize there is a 10 to 12 year planning timeframe in the road business, um, that means that, and, and you kind of have to have five years of building up to doing a road project before anybody says, oh, we need to do it. Now you're talking 17 years. If you look at the population of Spring Hill 17 years ago, we didn't need all the roads we got now that we need, you know, that we need no. now. So, you know, everybody's saying, oh, why does Franklin have all these roads? Or why is Brentwood getting those roads? Those cities have been around developing over a much longer time frame. So they've had more time to do that planning, more time to initiate that planning. Now, frankly, we're bringing on Buckner uh, and 65 Interchange in record speed. And part of the reason for that is it's going through virgin land. You know, yep. widening a road that has already been developed is much harder. So I hear lots of comments. Why, when are we going to get 31 done? Well, first of all, 31 is a state road. We are not in control of that project. And second of all, look at all the right-of-way that's going to have to be negotiated. Look at all the changes in entrances and, and accesses to parking lots and all of that. It is not going to be an easy task. And we'll get there. I'm absolutely positive we will get there. But um, I, what we really need to do is beg for patience. <laughs> Now you talk about growth. Is there, I guess there's good growth and there, there's bad growth. Where do we fit in all of this? Which one's winning out now? I think there has been a change. Um, I think there, I think anytime you get just rooftops, that's bad development. And I think there was a time where all we got was rooftops. And therefore, I don't know that I think that was the best growth we could have. We needed a more balanced growth. I think some of the newer developments that are coming on board, June Lake, Hebron Square, Spring Hill Town Crossing, those are all much more balanced growth. But I also think we need to balance out with some additional industry uh, and industrial activity as well, um, because you just can't live and shop, there's gotta be something else. And the, the most complete cities, the healthiest cities are the ones that have a balance of cultural and entertainment and restaurants and shopping and industry and offices and houses. And so I think creating that balanced mix is where we need to be heading and where we need to be evaluating new projects and I think the Planning Commission has been doing that for the last couple of years. Um, let me segue to a question I want to answer that um, may not be asked, but we have a lot of housing still yet to develop in this town. And in 2015, the state passed a law that said once it's approved, 
it gets to be built. It's called vested rights. So all those houses that are already built, no matter how many phases they can have, they can have 30 phases. And as long as they can do it in 15 years, they get to do it and we get to say nothing about it. Mm. So does that fall under bad growth? <laughs> Vested rights? Well, <laughs> I won't take aim at the state legislature. How's that? <laughs> Just leave that to me and Craig. We'll, we'll... Very good. <laughs> and, and the Facebook horde. <laughs> well, what I need to... Uh, what I need the citizens to understand is just because the planning commission approves a phase for a development that was first approved five years ago, they're not making bad decisions. They're following the law. And I feel sorry for them that they take it on the chin so much on Facebook because there's really nothing they can do about it. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand the role of a planning commission. Uh, I think they they think anything that they vote on, just that's that's done. But no, it, it goes. It has to go to the board of mayor and aldermen. Well, in, in some cases, I mean, there are yeah, some pieces by right, but yeah, yeah, in some most cases, yeah. And most of these plans, you know, they've been around for a while. Um, new plans, you know, we're trying to make sure our balanced plans, a little bit of housing, a little bit of commercial, a little bit of um, recreation, that sort of thing. What would you like to see come to town? I think we need some entertainment. We need some cultural stuff, whether that's uh, sporting stuff, whether it's uh, miniature golf. Now, do remember that I moved here from Sevier County. Okay. Oh, did you? <laughs> I so, lived in Sevier County for a, for a bit. Did you? Where'd you live? Out Newport Highway um, in Sevierville, but I don't know, like 17 miles outside of town, out by English okay. Mountain. Okay. All right. Um, do you know where the Weigels is? Not anymore, oh. probably. Oh, well, there's a Walgreens, a Weigels, um, Walter State Community College. I lived right there on what was called uh, Pittman Center Road. Okay. I lived, I lived across the highway up the hill from uh, Forbidden Caverns. Yeah, so just for the record, my favorite spot in the whole city is the top of English Mountain. It's beautiful up there. And it really is, and nobody knows about it. So it's just you yep. and the birds. Yep. Um, but anyway, so for me, if you don't have a boat on Main Street, <laughs> you're missing something, right? <laughs> yeah, and for folks who are listening from Texas and other places, not in Tennessee, Sphere County, that's where Gatlinburg is. That's where Dollywood is, all that kind of stuff. So it's just entertainment alley. Everywhere yeah. you go, there's lights. There's, it's kind of like, it's not Las Vegas, but I mean, it's it's pretty bright. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, but I think we could use some, you know, miniature golf or some, you know, um, you know, a driving range, or we could use yeah. bowling alley. We could use some things that um, are entertainment or a recreational sort of basis that are yeah. more like, more than just parks, you know. What if if Spring Hill had a dinner theater? What would its theme be? <laughs> there's medieval knights. There's the there's the cowboy bluegrass ones. What what would Spring Hill's themed dinner restaurant be? The North versus the South. <laughs> Maybe Wilco versus Seedy. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> 
<laughs> leave, leave them home versus take your dogs to to Home Depot every Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that whole thing? How about California versus Murray County? There you versus go. The, versus, versus everyone. everyone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of folks would like to see a diversity of land use. Is that happening? Or has the yeah. train already left the station on that one? So there's 19,000. 100 units in the city and 18,000 of them are some sort of residential usage. Wow. Okay. Wow. Now that doesn't include all the businesses that are in one large strip mall. So I mean, that counts as one land use. So uh -huh. it's probably a little more than that, but yeah. So I think we're a little heavy on, on residential. Um, but I think that is changing. I mean, we've gotten, look at all the uh, development around um, Beechcroft and Claiborne and, you know, all of that. And, uh, you know, look at some of the stuff that's starting to happen down uh, um, Port Royal and um, John Lund Road and Tom Lund Road, and, you know, the um, um, 700 acres on the other side of the interstate that was zoned for uh, I-2 industrial. So I do think that's starting to broaden out. Um, I would like to see a little more uh, public pocket parks and park, it, uh, park areas. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a cash flow issue. It, it's like, how do you, how do you prioritize parks uh, against the need for police officers and fire safety and, and that sort of thing? So. And that segues into, you know, do you all have enough staff right now to accomplish everything that needs to be accomplished? No, um, we did five year. So we have 261 staff full time right now. Hmm. The city of Columbia has over 350. They're smaller than we are and they don't have water and sewer. Brentwood has more than we have. Just about every city in the state last year when I looked at it, we were at least 100 people down for our population size. Now, what does that, what does that do to the citizens? Well, it makes our turnaround times longer for things. It makes there to be greater frustration with the fact that we can't get to their complaints as fast. It means that we um, take longer to, to get the grass mowed. It, uh, we don't do as well at doing analysis because we have so many people doing that we don't have anybody actually kind of planning and projecting and doing analysis to make sure that we're on the right track. Um, we've spent so much time working harder because we don't have the time or the staff to work smarter. And so we have to invest in technology and we have to invest in people whose job isn't always to make the widgets. And sometimes we need that staff to sit back and look to see if making widgets is the way we do is still the right way to do it. Um, and that's staff that feels like bloat right now because we are so short staffed. But the reality is it's really needed in order to make us even more productive and to keep us on the forefront of things. If you don't have time to plan, then you're busy reacting 
And I would say that in this town, we've done enough reacting and we need to get proactive. Okay, so why, why aren't you staffed correctly? I don't know that I understand, but I think, one, I think there's two good reasons. One is, you know, there was some tax decisions made 15, 16 years ago that took a while to come out of. And, um, you know, I think that put us behind the eight ball because not only did we not have the money then, but then we had to pay back the money we spent from the water and sewer fund. So then we didn't have the money even longer. And, and then the tremendous growth of just created huge capital demands. And so, you know, we built two fire stations and, you know, we've, we've done a good job with building a couple of decent sized parks. And, um, you know, we did duplex and reserve and Commonwealth. And so we have put some money into roads and roads are not cheap, you know, um, just to repave one, it's about a million dollars a mile to actually build one. You're talking, talking three to $4 million a mile, easy. And that's wow. not a big road. Well, Pim, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, you did a great job explaining what the city does, what a city administrator does. I hope people listening right now, can, before they hop on Facebook and complain, kind of understand, you know, the process and why it's taken a little longer. And, and it, it's all going to work out in the end. Just <laughs> have some patience, right? Patience, patience, patience. That's the word we need, patience. So... <laughs> Um, and, to, and remember, and I, I think if there's a, a parting comment, it's that there are lots of people choosing Spring Hill because they like the quality of life that's here. And yes, we all wish that it was just us that chose Spring Hill, but we ought to take comfort in the fact that there are so many other people who agree with us exactly. that we have this sort of demand that's causing us to need to do the things we need to get done. Well, you're doing a great job. Continue the great work. And thank you again for being on the show. No problem. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this episode of Prices Highway, the podcast. We appreciate you listening in. And we plan to record from Grecian Family Restaurant next time. Craig, my friend, wrap us up. Prices Highway is presented by Price Sells Homes. Don't think twice. Call Carrie Price at 615 497 3317. She's on the web too at pricesellshomes.com. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and get new episodes right when they drop. For Steve Price, I'm Craig Midget. Buckle up.